Hi there, and welcome to the Sanctuary Podcast. Our vision is to find sanctuary in Christ and then to be sanctuary to each other and express sanctuary to this city. And so for us, success is loving well, one person at a time. And if we can help you in any way, please do feel free to reach out, jump onto our website, sanctuarysf.com, and we would love to connect. Anyway, back to the podcast. This week, actually, if you could grab your Bibles, we are going to be in Mark chapter 6, verses 14 through 29. It's a really uh, uplifting passage. Just (laughs) fair warning, get ready to be really encouraged uh, and emboldened. Uh, Actually, hopefully you will be, but... Uh, yeah, just really, really briefly about um, about Mark and the book itself. We know that Mark was uh, writing largely to persecuted Christians in Rome uh, in the early church, and his purpose uh, was to explain who Jesus was to people that actually weren't around uh, didn't get to like meet him in person because he was largely largely writing to Gentiles uh, can some can I have someone read out actually this story and then I'm gonna have one person same as how we did last week I'm gonna have one person go ahead and retell uh, the story in their own words don't worry it's a pretty easy story to follow so probably won't be that hard uh but uh can i have somebody volunteer tim you want to read it yes do you have a version uh esv would be great great king herod heard of it for jesus's name had become known some said john the baptist had been raised from the dead that is why these miracle miraculous powers are at work in him but others said he is elijah and others said he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he had heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod was on his birthday. Uh, when Herod was Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for the nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias's daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to his girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you, up to half of my kingdom. And when she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on the platter. 
And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Thank you, Tim. That was amazing. Well done. Uh, can I have somebody attempt to retell that story in their own words really briefly? Anybody want to volunteer? Can I like, do some phone a friend to like, confirm I got everything right? Sure. Absolutely. So there's the king. Yes. And then his brother is Herod. Also Herod. Herod is the family name, actually. Oh, okay. Okay. So uh, the king Herod that we're referring to is Herod Antipas. Uh, and his brother is Herod Philip, but usually when you when you see Herod, they're referring to Herod Antipas. Okay. So the king's brother's wife was Herodias, mm-hmm. and she wanted John the Baptist dead, basically. So yes. she, um, her daughter, had been performing at the king's um, like banquet and feast, and she was very impressive and. The king gave his oath that he would give the daughter whatever she asked for, so the daughter, I guess as a good daughter would, asked her mother what Yeah, absolutely. Well done. Very well done. Uh, Okay, so before I sort of try and unpack this, let's get into, it seems like we sort of have three groups. Uh, Do you four want to go U block and then this block right here? Uh, Let's get together and I'll I'll have this group uh, attempt to answer the question, what does this passage tell us about people? And then both of these groups, can I have you guys try and discuss amongst yourself, what does this passage tell us about God? Uh, I'll give you guys a few minutes to, to talk about it amongst yourselves, and then we'll, uh, we'll come back out. So this side, what does this tell us about people? This side, what does this tell us about God? All right. If everybody, if everybody's good, let's, uh, let's go ahead and someone from this group far, well, stage, this is stage left, right? Yes. Right? Herman? Stage left? Okay, yeah. From team stage far left, uh, tell us, what does this scripture tell us about God? That's true. It's very true. Yeah. It is, that is absolutely uh, a, a true thing. Why do you think he... He lets that happen. 
if you had a It's fair. It's very fair. Very fair. kind of left what does this tell us about God and do you guys come up with anything else that's that's really good absolutely god doesn't actually really need a super like willing heart he wants willing hearts but like honestly like he can he can speak regardless uh he has the ability to to work through and then also i think like you're kind of like pointing out like god god will use us in situations that we probably don't expect to be used like i i doubt that john was like all right I'm in prison now is like really time for the ministry to take off. Like, uh, but like God was like, no, actually I'm going to use this and you're going to like minister to Herod. You're going to like minister to like the, the ruler of this land, which is really interesting. All right. There's a lot that this says about people for sure. What did you guys come up with? Uh, even just like a couple of things maybe that you came up with. People are the worst. <laughs> we are. <laughs> we are. We talked about. Uh, Amen. Yeah, just um, Tom brought up like the idea that the mom was kind of putting her daughter up for like some nefarious means, both just in front of dancing in front of the king, and obviously the implications of what the king's going to want him to return for that, and the whole means. You know, the reason is to kill someone. <laughs> you know, it's just. Yeah. Like that's all messed up um, in and of itself. And then we didn't actually talk about this, but I was thinking the the king's like morals. It's kind of interesting. He's like, well, I can't lie now, so I'm guessing I'm gonna have to kill someone. Mm-hmm. He's like, yeah. <laughs> lying is worse than beheading someone. You know, it's just it's just really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Can I say this kind of goes to both that that we have free will. Yeah. To do. To do. Yeah, it does kind of go to both. Yes, absolutely. Uh, yeah, and, and also to your point, um, 
to your point, Tim, like dancing in like that time was was sort of like not at all something that the king's daughter or in this case his um stepdaughter slash niece uh <laughs> would have been like doing it was reserved for like servants or like slaves actually like so like it it, it would have been like honestly really like shocking to see like the like king's daughter like doing this dance it was just is very in- very interesting that like Herodias had like set that up really like she's like I don't yeah, I don't care about your honor like I want this thing to happen um yeah uh really good really good insights uh honestly actually this is a this is a pretty dark passage I did bring a little something to liven the mood uh if you guys here go ahead and pass around some chocolates uh because it's uh you know what's better for when you're no 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 open they're they're individuals individuals uh and daisy and lily if you guys want one what better than chocolate when you're feeling down? I think that's a, either a Harry Potterism or something biblical. <laughs> one of the two. I can't. I can't remember. Oh yeah, absolutely. What did you get? I said, "Be with someone you look up to." Nice. Anyone else have a? Sweet message. Josie, what does yours say? Mine says, beautiful. Amazing. All right. So uh, this, this passage uh, is, is actually, it's interesting. You, we might not have picked this up because we, we pulled just the middle, but this passage is actually another example of Mark using his sandwich technique. Uh, this, this passage comes right after the sending out of the 12, and then it will conclude uh, with verse 30, the apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done. So Jesus, uh, Jesus has sent out the 12, and then Mark tells us this story. Oh, by the way, John the Baptist was beheaded uh and okay yeah the the 12 are back now um which is which is really interesting i mean honestly it's more of like a mark like four by four or like a like a mark philly's cheesesteak like like because there's a lot of meat and then there's just like a little bit of bread on either side but it is it is still like he is sandwiching this story in between this larger story what do we know about why mark does this can anyone say like what was what's like his purpose when he's using like this technique does anyone know or have a guess it's all right if you don't uh there's several different reasons that he does this probably the reason that's most applicable to this passage is he's using the interior story to drive home a point about the external story uh and so he has really, I think, John Mark has two purposes in this passage. 
the first is uh, is kind of obvious. He's foreshadowing the death of Jesus. There's quite a few parallels between this death, the death of John the Baptist, and the death of Jesus, which will come later. The first is they both die because they spoke out against people in authority. For John the Baptist, this was Herod and Herodias. For Jesus, this was the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the, the teachers of the law. And both in both cases, it caused a grudge that ultimately led to their death. Uh, also, they both die because a political figure succumbs to social pressure. In this story, we have Herod making an oath and then ultimately like succumbing to sort of that pressure. And then later we'll have Pilate. Uh, in Jesus's case, he will succumb to what the mob wants to do. And it's pretty obvious in both cases, they don't really want to do it, but they give in. And then last uh, obvious parallel is that they both die as righteous and innocent victims. Like it is, it's quite clear that John is not actually guilty of anything in this. And then it's also apparent that Jesus is not guilty of anything. And um, that's actually one of the major reasons that he's writing this. The other I actually think is more important. I think that this passage serves to impress upon readers the cost of discipleship. I think this, this theme comes up often, just again and again in Mark. Perhaps none are like more obvious than in like a few chapters, Jesus will say, anyone who would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Now, again, I, I said this, uh, the first sermon I gave like six months ago, but the cross to them is a different thing than the cross is to us. The cross to them would have been death. Like the cross to us is, okay, well, that that's like a symbol of Christ's sacrifice. And it's like actually like something that we put on our cars, like to be like, oh, look, Christ died for our sins. They never would have like put a cross symbol on like their like carriage or whatever. Like they would never have done that because effectively what Jesus was saying was, all right, if you want to call yourself a follower of me, get ready for a brutal and public death that will be incredibly humiliating. That's what he was saying. And he's like, okay, everyone good with that? We're all on the same page. That's, that's what we're going for. Uh, that's what he's saying. So the cost of discipleship is high. And, and this, this passage really serves to like drive that home. Uh, I want to, I want to break it down sort of into there's, there's a lot of different things that go along with the cost of discipleship. I think this passage highlights two. The first is that discipleship can mean speaking out. Now there's two, there's, there's an obvious example of speaking out in this passage and a, and a little bit more subtle example of really uh, not speaking out. The first is John the Baptist, obviously. He, he speaks out against Herod and Herodias' marriage. So we sort of touched on this, like, that marriage was unlawful because you weren't allowed to marry your brother's wife while your brother was still alive. They also both 
divorce their spouses to marry one another it was it's a really messed up story we, i don't really think it it helps too much uh to explain it but the idea was that what they were doing was unlawful and john was like not about to stand for it and he was like continuously speaking out and so herodias got this grudge and she had him arrested ultimately this is what's going to lead to him getting killed but john speaks out his boldness in this story is contrasted by the weakness of Herod and the other guests, actually. I, I read a lot of commentary and, and listened to a lot of commentary on this passage, and almost actually pretty much all of it uh, labels the other guests as either like people who they just didn't care about uh, John the Baptist dying, or they were act, like actively like goading on Herod into like committing this act. And I actually take like a complete opposite stance on this. Like I, I think going against all commentary is a really good way to like make a heretical statement. Uh, so take my thoughts as speculation, but I do think that it's insight from the Holy Spirit actually. Um, it's really easy to look at them, the other guests, these are, these are people who uh, the passage refers to them as nobles, military commanders, the leading men of Galilee. So there is going to be like a mixture of, of Romans and Jews in here. It's really easy to look at them and, and say, man, these, these people were evil. They didn't care at all. And they were like actively, it says, it says that Herod because of his oaths and his guests didn't want to like back down and he wanted to follow through. And so it's easy to look and say, ah, well, like I, that's nothing like me. Uh, I would have been horrified uh, to, to watch this happen. And I, I wouldn't have been like goading, goading him on at all. But I actually think like, what, what if they, what if they aren't evil? at all. We only see Herod's perspective. We don't really see the perspective of any of the guests, but we do know that Herod is deeply grieved. Uh, he was exceedingly sorry to hear this. So I think it's actually pretty reasonable that the other guests might have had a similar, uh, similar experience. They, um, they, and really all humans, we, we can fall victim to this principle called pluralistic ignorance. And pluralistic ignorance is the idea that like, one person will say something and then all the rest of us will sort of assume, oh, that's the majority opinion. But it's like one person says something. Billy says one thing and then I'm like, oh, yeah, that's, that's what everyone in the church believes. Like mentally that can happen really easily. I mean, this happens to me all the time. I can't even describe the number of times that I've been in a group We've been talking about where to go to dinner and someone suggests it's like Del Taco. And I'm like in my head, like that's literally just like an inferior Taco Bell. But no one says anything and we all just like end up at Del Taco. And then we are eating and someone like mentions like, man, I just don't like Del Taco. And we all realize like literally it was only one person who wanted to go to Del Taco. The rest of us were all like, let's go somewhere else, like please. And... That happens with, with what music we should listen to, what movie we should watch tonight, and 
what things we should do today, it's actually super common. I'm sure you can all think of examples where this happens like in your own life, where you just assume, oh yeah, everyone, everyone believes this, but it's not actually true. So looking back at the guests, what if they weren't actually like happy bystanders? What if they were like unwilling participants in what was going on? What if they were just victims of pluralistic ignorance? When I, when I look at them like that, I get like a sinking feeling that I'm a lot more similar to the guests than I would care to admit. Like I could actually now definitely see myself doing that. Like I could see myself in the room and he's like, I'll give you anything. And she says, I want John the Baptist's head on a platter. What? On a platter? Oh my gosh. They're going to kill somebody right now. And I would be like, I, I can't, I can't stand. We're not going to stand for that. But I'd just maybe be paralyzed by my own fear. Like looking around, well, no one else is saying anything. He did give an oath and oaths are pretty serious. Uh, I don't think I want to speak up and be ostracized like I'm going to just keep my mouth shut. And I, I, I think that that's like, it's e- easy to just detach ourselves and be like, these people are evil and judge them from afar. But I think the passage is intentionally vague because I think Mark wants us to wrestle with the fact that we're, we probably might've done the exact same thing as the guests. Um, now, the point of this is that discipleship often means that we're like asked to speak out. We're asked to say something that maybe the majority might not hold. Maybe they do hold and we just think they don't. But we're asked to speak out often. We live in a culture where to speak out against the majority is to be like publicly ridiculed. Like that's how you get canceled, right? Is like speaking out against the the majority and often people get canceled for, for very legitimate reasons, for sure. I'm, I'm not trying to say that they aren't. Uh, but the point is that we aren't called to silence. We're called to faith. We're not called to sit around and just hold on to our own, uh, yeah, our, our own thoughts. Like for me, for me this morning, I was actually like, I was a little bit nervous. Like, I think I'm supposed to share that God wants to speak this morning. Uh, and I was like, I don't really want to say this. And just this point was like going through my head. Like, you're not called to silence. You're called to obedience. You're called to faith. And so like, I was like, I, I need to step out. And that's when I asked Tom if I could speak. And I, I mean, r- realistically, that's what we're called to do. We can think back to Tom's sermon last week uh, about Abram and Sarai. Like they were old when they decided they were going to when God called them to leave and they would have announced like, "Hey, we're leaving." Everyone probably would have been like, "What are you doing? You're like 80. You can't just up and move right now." Like that's crazy. Who do you What are you doing? But we're not called to silence like we're called to obedience it's not up to us to do 
the thing that makes everyone like us. It's up to us to say what God puts on our heart, give him control, and practice obedience. The second thing that this passage really highlights, as Scott pointed out, is discipleship can literally mean death. Like, there are a lot of examples of this throughout history that discipleship can can literally just mean that that we're going to die um, for our faith. I, I think it's actually interesting. This story seems like it should be about John the Baptist, uh, but then it, it ends up really not being about him. This is one of like at this point in Mark, we've we've seen one passage that isn't about Jesus, and it was about John the Baptist in the very beginning. Uh, when John the Baptist is paving the way. And spoiler alert, we will not see another passage that's not about Jesus in the rest of Mark. There are literally two passages where he chooses not to talk about Jesus, only two. And so it seems like, okay, well, like, as a reader, like when we're reading this for the first time, we haven't heard about John the Baptist since we heard he got arrested in the first chapter. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. Wait, when did he die? What? He's dead? Like, we, we haven't heard about him for the, the past few chapters, and now he shows up and he's dead. And this passage does serve to sort of, he's like, oh, yeah. I almost like see Mark being like, oh, yeah, I haven't explained that he's dead yet. Let me tell the story real quick and explain that he's dead. But John the Baptist is, is really not even a part of the story. He, he's, he's actually incredibly powerless throughout the story when he shows up. In the story, he shows up as a head on a platter. That's literally all that he's in here, uh, which is is pretty brutal. He just shows up as a head on a platter. He's powerless. And Tom Tom and Josie and I were talking actually yesterday in the car. We were talking about uh, the question, is, is this story primarily a tragedy? that's highlighting the weakness of humans. I mean, after all, like John's barely a part of the story and it's mostly about the fact that Herod is too weak to like actually hold on to uh, what he knows is right. He shouldn't kill John. Or is this story actually a celebration that John the Baptist completed his mission true to his identity? I mean, if you think back to Danny's sermon, I don't know how many of us were here, but Danny gave a sermon two weeks ago about uh, John and, and in this about identity. And in this sermon, uh, he mentions that John the Baptist is uh, is a man of singular identity. He was the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. It's like almost exactly how Danny did it. I, I did my best, Danny. But... Uh, that's who John was. He was the voice, and, and he was going to be the voice. He was going to tell Herod, make straight the path. Make straight the path. You can't marry, you can't marry your brother's wife. You can't do that. Uh, and that's, that's, who, that's who John the Baptist was called to be. That's his identity, and he was, he was sticking through to the very end. Now, I'm kind of borrowing from, from John Piper here. He has a, a famous sermon turned book called Don't Waste Your Life, 
I'll let you like look it up on your own time or, or read it on your own time. It's fantastic. But the point that I'm making and the point that Piper is making is very similar. This is actually not a tragedy. John the Baptist's story isn't one of failure. It's one of success. Yes, he's dead. And that is like from a human point. That's very sad. But his story is one of someone committed to an idea that is true. And also, his, 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 his witness is actually successful. Uh, what, what, we'll come back to that in a second. His, his story is a success just in terms of who he is, but then also in the broader sense his mission is successful. There's, I mean, there's thousands of stories of, of people, um, of people like being martyred. In just a few chapters, we'll see Jesus martyred. In a few books, uh, we'll see Acts. Uh, Stephen will be stoned. In a few years, Peter will be crucified as well. And I mean, it goes on and on. Joan of Arc burned on the stake. People killed every year in the Middle East and in Asia. Like this happens thousands of time and and through it all, there is woven a common thread that the kingdom of God is advancing through each of these, through each of these deaths, through each of these deaths, the kingdom is advancing. What Mark is doing in this passage is he's drawing a straight line between mission and martyrdom He's drawing a straight line between discipleship and death. His point is that if anyone would claim to be a follower of Jesus, you have to reckon with the fate of John. You can't just read this story and be like, oh man, that's rough. That happened to John. You have to be like, wait, God might let me die. Uh, that's a, that's a thing that definitely might happen. I'm not saying you should expect martyrdom and definitely not saying that you should seek it out. But don't be surprised if you face some form of it. Because to be Christian is to be persecuted. In the West, we sort of operate under this delusion of comfort. And... <laughs> That's Tom's book. Uh, but uh, in, in the East, they really, they're all too familiar with martyrdom. They have experienced this time and time again. They still experience it. It's not just a story they read in the Bible. It's their uncle. It's their grandma. It's their sister. Like, this happens, like, today. We shouldn't be surprised if it, like, if it starts to happen to us. And actually the point isn't that troubles and hardships like come like that. That is a, that's a key thing to, to reckon with. But the point is that the kingdom of heaven persists despite hardships and despite troubles, despite martyrdom, the kingdom of heaven persists. I don't know if you caught this, but Herod, Herod says, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. Now, Matthew and Luke also tell this story. And 
through through it all, it becomes apparent Herod's really scared that maybe John the Baptist has come back from the dead to like continue what he started. And the point is that he's he's right, actually. Now, I'm not saying that John the Baptist was resurrected and was like there to like haunt Herod. That's not what was happening. But remember, this story is told distinctly in between the sending out of the 12 and the return of the 12. At this narrative point, the 12 are out. And what are they out doing? They're out proclaiming that people should repent. Now, who else said that? John the Baptist. In the beginning of Mark, Mark chapter 1, verse 4, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. John the Baptist is dead. That's 100% true. But Mark is telling us in the midst, against the backdrop of, Mar- of John's murder, the 12 are actively out proclaiming a gospel of repentance. The kingdom of heaven is expanding and it's expanding way faster than it was before. Now, also this story foreshadows the death of Jesus, as I mentioned. And uh, from, from that, from a standpoint of the believers, I mean, and the kingdom of heaven, that should have been even worse than, than John dying like, John died, okay, the gospel continued to spread, like, even faster, actually. But if John was the forerunner, the forerunner of Jesus, Jesus was the focal point of this mission. He was what this mission was about. His death should have just sort of, like, just nipped it all in the bud. Like, it it should have been done. But instead, we know his death was the point. That was, like, the whole thing. His death actually launched a ministry that has continued to grow to this day. And Mark is, again, as I mentioned in the beginning, Mark's writing this to an audience of persecuted believers in Rome. They're meant to take encouragement from this, actually. Yes, Mark's, Mark's telling them, hey, look, you're, you're going to die. They're like, oh, uh, yeah, we know we're dying. Like literally we're like being persecuted in Rome. Uh, we know this, but Mark is saying, Hey, look, despite this, the 12 are out. The 12 are, are out proclaiming a gospel of repentance. And we're meant to take encouragement from this too. I mean, we're not actually seeing the same things. I mean, I haven't experienced, uh, someone, being killed for their faith that is someone that I know personally but I I fall into my own like pitfalls of seeing hardships coming up and then being like god where are you why are you letting this happen like even when we were trying to get into this building I remember like distinctly thinking god why is this lease so hard to sign like where are you? Do do you care about like us getting into a building? Like we've been at, we worked at this lease for, I mean, gosh, Tom, you were pulling your hair out. I'm sure like it, it was brutal trying to get this lease signed. And, and I was like, man, this, this is so difficult, like 
to to see God in this. But the truth is that the kingdom of heaven is is advancing nonetheless. Like the 12 are out nonetheless. People are out sharing the Bible or sharing the Bible, sharing the gospel nonetheless. We're meant to actually take encouragement from this passage even though even though it's a death, it's not a failure. It's a success. I'll, I'll close. I'll close with uh, this sort of a comment from from Dallas Willard, who says that the cost of discipleship is high, but the cost of non-discipleship is even higher. He says non-discipleship costs abiding peace, a life penetrated throughout by love, faith that sees everything in the light of God's overriding governance for good, hopefulness that stands firm in the most discouraging of circumstances, and the power to do what is right and withstand the forces of evil. His point is, okay, yeah, non-discipleship, or discipleship can cause, like, can cause you to give up your life. That cost is very high. But non-discipleship is actually the cost of what Jesus came for. To, to, to practice non-discipleship is to give up the abundance of life that Jesus came for. It's actually, that's the failure. The failure is to not live out, live into the abundance of life that Jesus came and died on the cross for. The failure is not to die. John the Baptist's death wasn't a failure. It was a success. The kingdom of heaven advanced nonetheless. So the last thing we're going to close with is a question, which is, what what does this mean for us? What what are we going to, how are we going to respond to this? I think, do we have a question for this? We might, I don't know, we might not. I'll ask the question regardless. Um, Let's get back into the same groups and say, uh, give two minutes or so. We we might share out. We might not. But um, just discuss. Okay, what is in light of this? What what is my response to this? How can I practice obedience in the face of discipleship? That can mean ostracization, or it can mean death. What does that mean? How do I respond to that? How do I practice obedience to that? Maybe it's something we're supposed to say, maybe it's something we're supposed to do or stop doing.